John chapter 13. I wanted to get through this large portion of narrative today, but there is so much there that... uh, especially regarding the perdition of Judas, that that we're going to have to separate that unto next of the the first Sunday of December and specifically talk about, and then it was night where Judas went out. I want to focus again. We've been talking really about I don't think we really understand the trauma. That's we talk about trauma informed care, things like that today uh, in healthcare. Um, the trauma that was at the first table, and and there's a reason why in chapter fourteen, verse one when he gets into the meat of what he wants to say to the disciples, he begins by saying, let not your heart be troubled. Because chapter 13 brings this all to a head. You learn, right now we're looking at just a simple fact that they learn, they're now being told that one of them is a betrayer. And then they're going to go on and be told that all of them are going to fail tonight. And then it gets even worse because Jesus says, and I'm going away. That's hard for these men who, with the exception of Judas had put all of their trust in this man and felt secure and they felt like they were going to a kingdom and Christ was going to be exalted and they were going to be with him. And everything seemed sure until he starts breaking the bread and pouring the wine. And then they are confronted with this horrible truth of apostasy, this horrible truth of their own weakness, and this horrible truth that Jesus Christ is not going to be there anymore. Physically. And Jesus Christ is dealing with this. And I want to pick up in verse 18, and read just a little bit, and we're not going to get through all this. And we've already dealt with verse 18 through 20, but just to get to the context, because we're dealing right now just with the subject of apostasy. One of you is going, not all of you are clean. One of you is unclean. That's really all he said about it so far, and we're getting more into the depth of it. He says, I speak not of you all, meaning this idea that one of you is unclean. 
I know whom I have chosen. So we talked about the doctrine of election here. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come that when it come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Even the subject of apostasy, he is presenting it in a way that is going to grow their faith. And he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receives whomsoever I send receives me. And he that receives me receives him that sent me. We have the doctrine of reconciliation here. So we've talked about the greater purpose of election and faithfulness. And now we pick up from there. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in his spirit, in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spoke. Now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of, the, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Then lying on Jesus' breast says unto him, he then lying on Jesus' breast says to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. We're not going to get through all of this today. In fact, we're going to have to leave verse 26 through verse 30 until next week. I want to just zero in really on the comfort, an unspoken comfort, that is existing here. He is speaking as a prophet still. It says, when Jesus had thus said, and he is now getting ready to speak very plainly, he is returning really to this reality because he took this break here in verses 18 through 20 to talk about some comfort in through this. He is, he is dealing with them so tenderly, but now he's going to speak straightforward. So he returns to a troubling truth of apostasy. One of you shall betray me. That's, I want to think, imagine that Jesus was here and he says you people at Bible Baptist Church one of you today is going to completely set me aside one out of you he doesn't say which one would that trouble you 
just trying to put yourself in the context of which you're sitting here. And again, like I said, these, these people, before they sat at this table, had a whole lot of hope, and they were enthused. And he, and he laid this out so clearly, seeing that uh, he says, it, it, it's no longer part, it's no, he's no longer using languages of clean and unclean and, and, and things of that nature, and he's, he's no longer predicating it on, on doctrines of election and reconciliation and, and then them being part of a great work. He's just saying plainly, and it's a stinging reality, and it's not just a reality that stung him. We, we get this idea of a very uh, uh, a remote, almost, Jesus Christ who is... It says here in verse 21, it says, He thus said he was troubled in the Spirit. Jesus felt the sting of this himself. I imagine they must have known, John must have known, especially sitting so close to Christ at this time, how troubled Jesus Christ looked. And it must have been obvious to the rest of them, he was troubled. Jesus, according to Barnes, was a man as well as God, and he felt like other men. His human nature shrank from suffering, his tender sensibilities were affected not less deeply than would be those of other men by the baseness of treason. Jesus was troubled along with his disciples. He wasn't apart from this, like he's not just saying in an aloof manner, one of you all are a betrayer, but he was saying it in such a manner that they saw that he himself was sorrowed and troubled by it. Every one of us has been betrayed at one point in time. We know what it feels like, right? <laughs> Jesus Christ was being betrayed, and his betrayer was sitting right there planning and plotting, and he is simply saying it, and he's saying it with all the pain and all the hurt that you and I would feel. So we see our impassable God. We, 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 ha, we, ha, we talk about that as a doctrine, that God is impassable, that, that God is not governed by emotions. But here we see Jesus troubled. Troubled by betrayal. He was fully identified with you and me. We talked about that when we were talking about this, this prophecy here where he talked about he that lifted up his heel against me. That whole psalm was not a messianic psalm. It was about David feeling betrayed. And it was about Jesus identifying with that. He identifies with his people. And he felt it. He was literally shaken. He was agitated. He was perplexed. He was emotionally stirred when he says these words and they come out of his mouth. You might even think in the picture here that he said it with tears in his eyes. He was visibly troubled. This was an inner truth that would become an increasing reality for the Savior. We're going to continue as I see as, as this unfolds, especially as we get to the garden. He becomes so sorrowful and heavy. This is not something that he's removed from. All the troubles of the people that he's speaking to, he has entered into it fully with them. In John 12, 27, he talked about him being troubled. 
uh, in the spirit, but now he was visibly so. His spirit, his humanity was passable. He felt the pain of what was happening with them. It was touching him. It affected him. And he, from that point of agitation, gave clear witness. And it says in uh, Matthew 26, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read, read Matthew 26 and verse 21. We get a greater idea. And he says, And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, one of you shall betray you. So there at the supper, at the very thing you and I are getting ready to reenact here in a seven, we have that sorrowful moment. And his witness is clear. Here he is, the prophet of God speaking. But he's not speaking of something that did not affect him. He was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. One of you. You almost hear the sorrow while you're repeating the phrase, one of you. And that's the source of the agitation. One of you, my friends. They were close. And we're going to see that in a second with John. How close was John? How close was Peter? How, how close were these people? Judas was not aloof. He was a friend. One of you is going to set me aside to my enemies. It will happen without further delay. We see the certainty in which he speaks. It does not directly say in the text, but he, the, the fact is he was troubled. His whole trouble was that it was one of them. That's what troubled him. It'd be one thing if someone out these doors hated me. It'd be another thing if one of you sitting here hated me. Right? What we're reading about here, the prophet identified a troubling truth. This happened while they ate the very meal that you and I will reenact today. The effect of the words and the demeanor through the world of the disciples, this is when things start to unravel for them. It doesn't get better from here. Uh, it threw the world, their world into doubt. And it sparked the spirit of a self-examination that's still part of the Lord's table today. As when, when we take the Lord's table, you and I are getting ready to do that again. What are we going to be asked to do? Examine ourselves. That's what they did. They began to examine themselves. Then the disciples, it says in verse 22, Then the disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spoke. See first their troubling self-doubt. Now, I know some of you all are very uh, self-reliant, all right? Um, not, not, not you, not, not me either. Uh, we all have room for self-doubt all the time. But do you remember what they were doing before this? I'm probably the greatest, <laughs> right? You, know, you can even hear some of the arguments they had. Andrew stands up and says, not Andrew back here, but, uh, but Andrew stands up and says, I was the first, well, I was the first disciple. 
Don't you remember, guys? I was the very first one that followed. I'm the one that told you about him, Peter. I've got to be the greatest. And Peter says, but I'm the one that's always one of the three. I'm the one giving the right answers sometimes and the wrong answers. Uh, and then John says, I'm the one sitting right next to him right now. Look, look who he had sitting right next to him. And, and, and it goes on and on. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. And, and John and James were, were on the way to the supper saying, having their mom approach Jesus and say, can John and James sit on the right side and the left side of you in the kingdom? Can they be in this exalted? And they're arguing about who is the greatest. And now they're looking around, not just doubting each other, but they're doubting themselves. That's a complete 180, right? You talk about just a complete change of demeanor. All of a sudden, they're looking around in doubt, self-doubt. And, and this really captured here, and John does not do this very often, but he uses an imperfect verb to get us in almost in, in part of the scenery, indicating that they began and continued to look at each other. They were suspicious. You ever been in a church service where everybody's just suspicious of each other? <laughs> that's a that's a terrible a terrible thing to to be. Uh, uh, but they were suspicious. Who's he talking about? Who's going to betray him? After all, this is the man that knows all things. He knows everything about us. Uh, gee, he 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 uh, he knows, and he says, "One of us." Is it Peter? Is it John? Is it James? Who is it? Is it me? And then you get into that rabbit trail of self that praise the Lord that we have a faith that is built on Christ and not us. Amen? Because if you start looking at yourself long enough, you're going to see possible betrayer. <laughs> Someone who's gonna, someone who's gonna, who's gonna crack, who's gonna, who's gonna fail. The arm of flesh is always gonna fail you. You're, you're, praise the Lord that this is not built upon us. They, 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 but they were suspicious now, each of the, each other, and even doubting their own selves. The other gospel stated this time they began one by one. Is it me, Lord? Is it me that you're talking about? We'll get to it next week, but even Judas. Is it I? They began to, well, Luke twenty-two twenty-four. 24, they began to inquire. That catch captures that imperfect tense of our text, that imperfect verb. They began to inquire. They continued. They were thrown in a tizzy, if you would. They began to inquire among themselves. They're not just asking is it me to themselves, and is it me to Christ? But they're talking to each other. Thomas, could I, could I be failing in somehow? Am I, going, am I someone that can betray Christ? They're talking, they began to inquire among of this, which of them, and they're probably even throwing accusations around. It, it, no, it, it, I, it's a, it, look at how suspicious this guy's acting over here. Maybe it's him. And they're, and they're throwing all these accusations around. Which of them it was that should do this thing? 
This was the fruit of exceeding sorrow. They did it sorrowfully. In Matthew 26 and 20, uh, verse 22, it says, and, every, and they were exceeding sorrowful, not just Christ. They were exceeding sorrowful. And began everyone to say, Lord, is it I? Literally, when we're looking at our texts, they were without a way. They didn't know what to do. They were confused. They were perplexed. This is that troubling of the heart that was beginning that would have to be lovingly rebuked in, 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 in chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. This is where they are. I don't know where to go. This is the, trauma, the trauma of all this. Um, uh, everything was, shake, was beginning to shake around them. They went from being a, in a sure position, questioning which of them is to be greatest, to questioning and wondering whether or not they themselves or the person sitting next to them is a traitor. The true chosen, though, I, I think we have something very instructive here. And it's just amazing how John lays this out. In verse 23, he says, Now there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Where are we going to find an anchor in our times of trouble and self-doubt? Well, it's not going to be in us because we're sitting there doubting. Just like the disciples, doubting, 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 wondrous, exceedingly sorrowful. Blah, uh, that's the scene. We can only find assurance in him. And this verse enters into this short story of Peter and John. Highlight this. John calls himself something here that's going to be repeated five more times. Four more times. This is one of five times he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And that, that's how we end up really, he ends up declaring overtly his own identity. I'm the one that writes. I'm the one that Jesus loved. If you want, if you want the rest of it, uh, uh, John 19, 26, 22, 21, 7, and, and verse 20 of 21 as well. But it all stems from this moment. John, whatever, something happened here that made John feel loved. In fact, isn't this the way he predicated this entire event? Going back to the first verse, John 13, 1. Jesus, having loved them, loved them unto the end. And he just didn't apply it to himself there. He implied it to everyone. He loved his own to the end. This is how he's predicated everything that has happened. And now he says, I'm the one loved. He talks about himself in the third person. He doesn't really reveal his own identity here. But he says, he says now there was, was leaning on Jesus' bosom one. Who that one is, it wasn't important to him. 
the identity of the one wasn't important at this moment, but there was one of the disciples, and Jesus loved that disciple. So whatever happened in the scene, it left a lasting impression of John. John, at this time of trouble, felt loved by Christ. And he hides his identity here. But he hides it in Christ. He doesn't say, I'm the one writing, and you know, I'm John the Apostle, I'm the loved of Christ. He says there was one, and that one was loved. In this world where everybody's looking for an identity, what a way to what a way to identify yourself. Identifying yourself in the midst of the love of Jesus Christ. So he hides his identity here. He simply calls himself one. One reclining on the bosom of Christ. And that's important here because we're going to have a change of language in verse 25. But look at the language here in 23. Now there was was leaning or reclining. That's kind of the way they ate this supper. They were reclining on the floor, leaning. We, we, have, we, have, every, we, we have a very modern Michelangelo uh, or Leonardo picture of them all sitting on a on a on a on a table with chairs and no they were sitting on the floor reclining and he says there was one of those that was reclining there reclining on the bosom of Christ now that word bosom now it could literally mean that he was literally reclining on the breast or the bosom of Christ physically, or it could just be a reference to the folded part of the pocket of the, of the garment, also called the bosom. But whatever it is, this word bosom is meant to show an intimacy of position. The rich, the rich man died, the beggar died. The rich man opened his eyes in hell, but the beggar was caught up into Abraham's bosom. So there's meant here an intimacy of position. He was, there was one leaning upon Christ. That's the position he was already in when this news came. He was already there leaning upon the bosom of Christ. Christ allowed him to draw near. Now, John was the youngest, probably a teenager, and him, who is probably would have probably be considered the least among them, because the rest of them were men, mature men. Some of them were even, uh, I mean, they were business owners and things of that nature. But John, this young, probably teenage boy, sitting at the right of Christ, reclining towards him, leaning on him. We see the tenderness of Christ here. We, and he knew himself to be the one, be one that Christ loved. Let me ask you. Do you feel like you're loved by Christ? Not, not, not just in a doctrinal way that you, that you, uh, you know Jesus loves the world and Jesus 
But like that song we sang, Jesus loves even me. Do you feel that? Because John at this time of self-doubt and turmoil said, I feel loved by Christ. I'm the one here right now whom Jesus loves. I always remember uh, 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 my, my, I, Jim Benny uh, talking about counseling a, a pastor who was found in, in sexual sins. And he asked the pastor just a straight up question. Do you, feel, do you believe that Jesus loves you? And of course he goes, well, I know the Bible says this. And I know that, no, he says, well, do you feel that Jesus loves you? And he broke down in tears and says, I've never felt like Jesus really loved me. Do you feel like Jesus loves you? Not, 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 not a, like a Sunday school song. Reality. Do you? Is that real to you? It was real to John. Here John feels this for himself. John in his writing was always apt to apply a deep love of Christ. It's not like John singling himself out or even trying to sing, I'm loved more than anyone else. Because if you read, and the more you read John and, and the Gospel of John, the three epistles of John and Revelation, you, you, you find this all over, the love of Christ, the love of Christ. And it's universal, it belongs to every single one of us. We're going to sing at the end in Revelation 1, unto him that loved us. John's not trying to exclude anyone from this. He is simply stating as a truth. He is simply stating as a truth what he felt that is available to all. Simon, maybe out of fear due to his recent light, light rebuke, or maybe just because he didn't happen to be as close to Jesus as John was. But Peter, he beckoned to John. In this idea, he started, John, John. And, and, and in the in the received text, it gives us in the opposite. He, he was longing. He said, John, John, I need you to go to Christ for me. So Peter was a step away, but, but he knew he needed to get to Christ. He needed to have in Christ inquired. Now some, some will say that the optative is not part of the text. And, and what the text is really saying is Peter was just asking John, John, do you have special insight here? No, Peter was wanting to hear from Christ. I don't think that that is a proper reading of our text to say that Peter was asking John. Like Peter felt like now he needed a, a, a church or a man to go to Christ for him. And the fact that John... At for Peter asked shows that that's the correct reading of the text. Peter knew his hope at this time was Christ, and if he was he was no longer in a position to speak to Christ directly, he would ask another to intercede for him. We were just talking about that in James. If you feel like you can't get to Christ, where do you go? one another that's where we go 
confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Here we see that very same thing working out. Peter is not in the position to get to Christ, so Peter beckons. He said, John, John, ask him. Ask him. He knew Christ to be his only source. The fact that John responds, or John here responds, it says in verse 25, and then we're going to quit. He then lying on Jesus' breast says unto him, Lord, who is it? Christ is turned to as the source. And that, if you get anything from this short little text, and I know this is just narrative, this is us kind of open, going into the scene, but here we have disciples, all of them troubled, and we have the example of two of them going to Christ. The fact that John was not lifting himself up is again apparent in the text. Uh, he, he's very, one of the things that John does as a device is he'll use these demonstrative pronouns and he, he literally says, he says, says uh, he then, and that literally in the, in the Greek is, and that one. <laughs> so he, he uses that device a lot, and that one. So he's not lifting himself up here in this text, and this text in the description of himself is not meant to lift himself up. He shows himself as one reliant upon Christ to know. He doesn't show himself as having one doubt. He turns to Christ and says, Lord, who is it? I want you to see the word picture here, though, because the words lying on Jesus' breast are different, and we capture this in the English, is different in verse 23, where he was already leaning on Jesus' bosom. Here, he is lying on Jesus' breast, and you get the idea that there he was close, then all this turmoil happened, and he has moved away, he has begun to, to be a part of the debate and all the troubling things that are going around. But what does he do as he leans back in even closer than he was before? That is hard to capture in the English. But that's the idea there. He has gone from leaning to lying. From the bosom to the breast. He has leaned closer to the ear of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's where our help is. And I wonder, and you, you, you see not just the reliance of John and the reliance of Peter here upon Christ, but you see the tenderness of Christ allowing the youngest disciple there to lean in a little closer. We see that in the picture, in this word picture. We see a Christ that wants us to draw near. And what's going to follow is some more, some harder things for us to hear. But ultimately, what's going to follow is greatest words of comfort that have probably ever been spoken. In John 14 and 15 and 16. 
Draw near to Christ. I know we're breaking up this narrative by talking about this part, and then we'll talk about Judas' response next time. But draw near to Christ. Don't rely upon yourself. Rely upon Him. Remember the sense they were all asking if it was them. He went from leaning on the bosom to falling upon the breast in order to be closer to the ear of his master. You want to know what the proper response to troubling, troubling times and trauma is? It's right there. And what love. John walked away from this experience. In fact, in John 21, he's still talking about it. He's still saying, yeah, you remember at the, at the, at back at that supper when there was one lying upon the breast? I'm the one that was writing now. I'm, that's the one writing to you, the one that Jesus loved there. And in times of trouble, we can experience the love of Christ by leaning in a little closer to him. That's what John got at. He, this seared in his mind. John, uh, Peter later on would talk about the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, I was an eyewitness of that. John was remembering this, how Jesus Christ allowed him to lean in a little closer to ask one simple question that was troubling him. And from that moment on, he started calling himself by this name. I'm the one whom Jesus loved. Some manuscripts say it was thus from that position that he petitioned the Lord. I don't know if the word thus belongs in the text or not, and I don't think it really makes a little difference but or that much difference. But if it is meant to be in the text, it's just simply this. It's only from a position of being close to Christ that we'll find help in a time of trouble. The one that, come, that came from the bosom of the Father. One more point about Jesus and his tenderness. The one that came from the bosom of the Father invites those that he loves to find security in his bosom. And that's a wonderful thought. I hope you receive something from the Word of God. We'll now take time to celebrate the Lord's table.